Good morning. This is a special day today as we honor, celebrate our senior adults, at least those of you who identify as a senior adult. Um, so I think uh, most of you senior adults would attest to the fact that as you get older, you begin to think more and more about how will I be remembered? What will my legacy be? Is my time spent here on earth going to make any difference for those that come behind me? What legacy will I leave to my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren? I'm here to tell you today that legacy is not prominence, it's not power, it's not fame or fortune, uh, it is love, hence the title of the sermon, a legacy of love. If the greatest commandment is to love God and love people, well, the greatest legacy is one of doing just that, loving God, loving people. So today I want to challenge not just senior adults, but all of you who are listening to leave a legacy of love. And to be clear, I'm not talking about a legacy that glorifies you. Life is not about you or me. It's about Christ. So I want you to leave a legacy that honors him. Referring to Jesus, Paul reminds us that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. You may be familiar with a song that comes on the radio pretty consistently by Casting Crowns. It's called Only Jesus. And in that song, a part of that song goes like this. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's said and done. Because all that really matters is did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever? I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. And those lyrics basically sum up the aim of this sermon. That is to leave a legacy of love, one that points to Jesus and his love. So our text this morning will be 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. This is a text that's fresh on my mind because my D group is going through it. So if I give you any profound insight this morning, it probably came from Sloan Terrell over there who's in my D group. So you can thank him for that. So Jonathan Edwards reminds us that love sums up the entire Christian life. Again, 1 John 3 is just one of many passages that remind us as Christians to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is love, love for God and love for one another. Paul tells us in the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now why is love the greatest? Why is love greater than hope? Why is love greater than faith? Well, one day when you enter glory, your faith will be no more. Your faith will have become sight. One day when you enter glory, you're not going to need hope anymore. Your hope will be reality. But guess what? Love will remain. Love is eternal because as John reminds us, God is love. So we'll experience God's love for eternity. Uh, first, excuse me, Psalm 103:17 reminds us of this glorious truth. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your perfect love for us that was displayed through our Lord Jesus. Pray that we as your children uh, understand more deeply that love and pray that we more faithfully display that love to others. I pray this morning that you would prompt our hearts to leave a legacy of love if we're not on that trajectory already. 
uh, set our hearts and minds on what's eternal, and that is your love. So may we maintain determination in this life to invest our lives to that end, to love you and love one another. Pray that as your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray this morning that you would draw near to us through your words that we draw near to you. And as we sang earlier, we know that apart from your Holy Spirit, all is vanity. So I pray that your spirit would work today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as you may know, John wrote 1 John to warn his readers about false teaching, uh, to identify false teaching and remind them of the truth. So 1 John reaffirms the core of what Christianity is. And if you're taking notes, Christians should exhibit obedience, sound doctrine, and love. And John goes so far as to say, if you don't exhibit these things, you are not a Christian. If you do not exhibit sound doctrine, obedience, and love, you're not a Christian. That's a heavy reality. So today we'll focus on this theme of love. Uh, The fact is, Christians uh, should be loving. That's not new information to you. Uh, You know that Christians are commanded to be loving, right? But I hope today as we examine 1 John 3, you'll understand more deeply what love looks like. And you'll examine yourself to see if your love looks like the love that John describes. So John, the author of this letter, is known as the apostle of love and inspired by God. John had a lot to say about love. So I want to read 1 John 3, 11 through 18. Actually, I'm going to back up and read verse 10 because it sets the stage for 11 through 18. So here's what John says. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother is righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So false teachers of the day were essentially undermining Jesus, uh, both who he was and his identity and the things that he did and and he taught. They're basically saying, you you may have heard from the apostles that Jesus is this, but I'm telling you, Jesus is not this, he's this. Uh, Jesus may have said that you need to be obedient, but obedience, it really isn't that important. Jesus may have said that as Christians, you should display love, but that's not really that important. So again, John has to uh, basically do what Jude commanded in Jude chapter 3, And he has to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Let me just say regarding uh, spotting false teaching, if it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's probably not new, okay? So again, we'll see here that John goes back to the beginning and reminds the, uh, the readers of what is actually true. So he says this, um, Basically, going back to the beginning, you heard a message, and so John reminds the readers that the gospel is unchanging. When John says the beginning, he means essentially the beginning of gospel proclamation, the beginning of their Christian faith. So in the beginning, they had this message, and this message is unchanging. 
to false teachers 2,000 years ago, false teachers today will distort, twist, attempt to alter the gospel. Uh, but John is telling his readers that is not possible. The truth of who Christ is, what he has done, what he has taught is unalterable. Even though teachers today still try to undermine it. You know, in, a, in a day of relativism, new age teaching, false gospels, uh, we are now responsible to contend for the faith like John was doing. Uh, to protect sound doctrine, uh, to preach the gospel. We're now stewards of the gospel. So John takes his readers back to the message they heard from the beginning, and part of that gospel message was that we should be loving. We should love one another. Now, obviously, this is not a unique command to John. Um, basically, every writer of the New Testament spoke of this, going back to Jesus, for example, said in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so in one sense, this command from Jesus is really old. You can go back to Leviticus 19.18, for example. It says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's a very old command, goes back thousands of years. But in another sense, this is a brand new command in the sense that Jesus has actually manifested love in a way never known before. We'll talk more about how he did that in just a minute. But Jesus displayed perfect, sacrificial, relentless love. And so in a sense, you know, Jesus laid love, he brought it up to a much higher level. So in that sense, this command to love was, was new. Uh, but Jesus uh, wasn't the only one that talked about love. Paul, for example... Romans 13, 8 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another, one another has fulfilled the law. The writer of Hebrews, that may or may not have been Paul, says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you see how important love is in the Christian faith? God inspired all these words, right? You know, what it comes down to is really the credibility of Christianity rises or falls on how we love one another. Jesus says, you'll know my followers by how they love one another. So the greatest apologetic or defense of the Christian faith is how we love one another. That's how important it is. And again, as we just read in John 13, Jesus says that the world has the right to judge whether you're a Christian based on how you display love. So if, you, if you've read through 1 John, you probably noticed that John uses contrasts and comparisons to make his points to teach well. Uh, that's still a common method today is, is teachers teach. They use comparisons to get their point across. So if you read 1 John, he contrasts walking in darkness with walking in light. He contrasts those who love the world with those who love God. He contrasts the Antichrist with Christ himself. He contrasts sinners with the righteous. And here in these verses, he contrasts love with hate. He contrasts children of God with the children of the devil. Okay, and so to do that, he goes all the way back to the beginning, um, back to Genesis. And this is um, actually the first murder in human history. And it's actually the only direct Old Testament reference in 1 John. It's actually the only time John uses a proper name. And that proper name is Cain. So John says that we are to love one another instead of following the example of Cain 
who hated and killed his brother, Abel. So verse 11 flows naturally out of verse 10. The child of God, having been born of God, does what is right, which includes loving his brother. Whereas in contrast, the child of the devil does not do what is right. He hates, even murders his own brother. Murder is the ultimate act of hate. So just as God delights in giving life, Satan and all Satan's followers delight in bringing death. So the shocking story of history's first murderer is found in Genesis 4. Uh, don't turn that, I'll read it for you. Uh, starting in verse 2, we read, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Now take note that Cain was not an atheist. Cain was a religious person. Cain was going through uh, sacrifices of religion, okay? So as a religious man, he offered sacrifices, but while Abel's sacrifice was acceptable or pleasing to God, Cain's was not. It was unacceptable. And this made Cain very angry. And so we see that Cain, moved by his spiritual father, the devil, his heart was filled with jealousy. He got angry, and he murdered his brother Abel. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but it's most uh, likely that Cain murdered Abel in the same way an Old Testament priest would offer a sacrifice. You can do the research on that, but it was a brutal, gory murder. It's as if Cain said to God, you know, you're not going to accept this offering. I'll give you an offering. He murdered Abel. So again, Cain was a religious man. Uh, it is possible today to be a religious man or woman and still have an unregenerate heart, a heart full of anger and hatred. You can be going through the systems of, of religion and have an unregenerate heart. That was the case for Cain. And keep in mind, it wasn't atheists who killed Jesus. It was religious people. So to all this, John says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. It's only natural that children of the devil, like Cain, will hate children of God, like Abel. And just to be clear, the world doesn't hate Christians because we're hateful people. I think the story of Cain, Cain and Abel show that. Abel didn't do anything hateful toward Cain. Cain hated Abel because of who he was. Uh, neither does the world hate Christians because they're good people. So let's be clear. The world doesn't hate good people. The world hates Christian people. That's an important distinction. If we just do good, the world will admire us. But if we boldly, clearly stand for Christ, the world will hate us. That's true for individuals. That's true of us collectively as a church. So look, John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Because Satan is the prince of the world, and Satan hates Christ. If you go back to the upper room, Jesus promised the apostles that the world would hate them. Uh, John 15, starting verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So the world hated Jesus without cause, and they killed him. The world hated the apostles without cause, and the world killed them. The world today hates Christians without cause, and they're Christians being martyred all over the world today. And again, John says, don't be surprised. Uh, the world hates you because it first hated Jesus. And here's the thing for us, as we're hated by others, as we're hated by the world, we don't respond in hate. Uh, we actually respond in love. Jesus says, love even your, your enemies. And just to be clear, liking someone is a matter of personal preference. Loving someone is a biblical command, right? You don't have to like them, but you're commanded to, to love them. The fact is, as we love others, even our enemies, there are many benefits and blessings. And John names one of these benefits, and that is the assurance of salvation. So John says, love provides assurance that we have, have eternal life. John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now, to be clear, John is saying that loving others is evidence we have eternal life. He's not saying that loving others causes us to have eternal life. That's an important distinction. And so this reminds us of the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. Do you know that God wants you to know, to have assurance that you're his child? Do you know that? So John says a few verses later, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Then a third time in this letter, John says towards the end, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's what Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson said about assurance. He says the promises of the gospel would be emptied of their power if we had no confidence in the God who makes them and whose character is expressed in them. We would end up doubting, as Satan truly wants us to, that God is our own heavenly Father. Now, here's the, here's the reality. If you doubt your own salvation, how effective will you be at the Great Commission, which is our purpose, by the way? How confident will you be in laying out the gospel as a power in salvation if you doubt your own salvation? So God wants you to know that you're saved and to take that gospel to the nations. And again, if you doubt your salvation... You'll live a life of legalism, trying to measure up to God's commands. Uh, you'll live a life of fear, always fearing that you haven't done enough. Uh, you'll forget the fact that Jesus himself has accomplished your salvation. It's not about you earning God's favor. It's about Christ has earned God's favor through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And through him, we're justified. Justification is a one-time act that means Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness once for all. Your salvation is accomplished. It's not about you living up to a certain standard. Christ has done that for you. The fact is, Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. No person, no thing can separate you from the love of Christ. So think about this. Are you assured at this very moment of your salvation? You know, the Bible never tells you when it comes to assurance to look back on things that you did earlier in life. You know, I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer? Did you get baptized? Did you walk an aisle? I'm asking right now, are you assured of your salvation? Let me just pose a few questions for you to, to reflect on. 
Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus for your salvation today? Or are you still trying to work your way to God as if that's even possible? Romans 8.16 is the Holy Spirit testifying with your spirit that you are God's child today, right now. Are you repenting from sin, believing in Jesus, and following Him daily? Is that the trajectory of your life? According to Matthew 7.17, Jesus says you'll know followers by their fruit. So as you examine your life, is there any fruit of salvation? Do you pray? You know, for the Christian, prayer is like breathing. So not only do you pray, do you see God responding to your prayers? That's good evidence of salvation. And most of all, in light of this text, are you a loving person? Does your life display the love of Christ? Love is simply one of many avenues of assurance. Because the fact is, it's impossible to be a Christian and to not love others. As one writer said, <clears throat> where the gospel has taken root, love will be the natural fruit. It's impossible to be a Christian and not be loving. So as we love one another, we're assured that we are in the family of God. So John says those who live, whose lives are characterized by hatred give evidence that they have not been born again. They remain in death, John says. They remain in the state that Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. They're dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following Satan, slaves of disobedience, children of wrath. So John says these people are not only spiritually dead, they're actually murderers in the sight of God, verse 15. Now, it's true that only a small percentage of people will actually murder someone, um, but... Only the, out, the only outward difference between murder and hate is the deed itself. The attitude is the same. The attitude is hatred. And so an attitude of hate in your heart is equivalent to having murder in your heart. And Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So according to John, it's, it's really quite simple. No love, no life. No love, no spiritual life. Love and hate are moral, spiritual opposites. One commentator noted this is important. He says, when John says no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, that does not mean that a believer could never commit an act of murder or that someone who has committed murder can never be saved. He says, but it does mean that those who are characterized by hateful attitudes and who regularly harbor murderous thoughts evidence an unregenerate heart and will perish eternally unless they repent. So John, having shown that love is the evidence of spiritual life, goes on to explain what love looks like in verses 16 through 18. And we see that the essence of love is self-sacrifice. Again, notice the contrast here. Hate is negative, seeks another person's harm, and leads to activity against him, even to the point of murder, while love, by contrast, is positive, seeks the other person's good, and leads to activity for him, even to the point of self-sacrifice. So John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if you're taking notes, loving others, serving others, may mean dying. 
And of course, the cross is the ultimate display of sacrificial love. Because of his love for the Father and his love for us, Jesus humbly came to earth in the form of man, lived the perfect life you and I could never live on our behalf. He took the brutal punishment for sin on the cross, and he died. And that was in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5, where Isaiah the prophet says, He, meaning Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Paul says, Romans 5, 8, God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Later on, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You know, it's been said that it was love, not nails, that kept Jesus on the cross. Jesus' sacrificial love for you and his love for the Father kept him on the cross. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story or else we'd still be doomed. So three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. He defeated sin, defeated death, defeated hell. Now Luke says, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Of course, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And God promises in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me just encourage you, if you ever doubt God's love for you, look to the cross. That's the ultimate display of love. Don't ever doubt God's love for you. Just look to the cross. Jesus showed that true love at its core is about self-sacrifice. And in our case, sacrifice for people who were totally unworthy. You know, it's amazing that Jesus knows the worst there is to know about you and me, and he still laid down his life for us. The best definition I found of love is one I've used before from Paul David Tripp. Here's how he de defines love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. And again, that describes the love of Christ for us. If we really understand the magnitude of Jesus' love for us, that will compel us to love others. That's exactly what John says. So John says, out of gospel gratitude to Jesus for laying down his life for us, we ought to or should be willing to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus said it like this in John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So here's the challenge for you and me. The love that Jesus displayed was not just one that we sit back and admire. It's one that we're called to actually emulate. That's the challenge. Warren Wearsby said it like this. He said, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there's a relationship between John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. So John 3.16 is a demonstration of love, 1 John 3.16 is an explanation of love. So John 3.16 says that God gave his own son for us. And 1 John 3.16 says that we ought to give our lives for others. So as you know, tomorrow we'll celebrate Memorial Day. Tomorrow we remember those men and women who laid down their lives for our country. And so we celebrate that day because we rightly recognize that to sacrifice one's life for friends, for brothers, for their country is noble and courageous and honorable.
Let's not forget that while a soldier can die for his comrades, it's Christ who died to make it possible for his enemies to be reconciled to him. I've never heard of an American soldier going into the enemy's camp and falling on a grenade to spare the enemy's lives. Have you? That's essentially what Christ does for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for us. So tomorrow, let's enjoy the freedom we have in our country, but don't forget that in Christ we have the ultimate freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from eternal death, freedom from hell. So notice what John says next in this text. True love isn't just revealed in supreme sacrifice of laying down your life. It's revealed in smaller, lesser things. Okay? So if you're taking notes, serving others may sometimes involve dying, but service to others always involves giving. You know, the fact is, not many of you are going to be called to lay down your life in some act of heroism. That's just the reality. But every single one of you in Christ is called to give sacrificially. So in verses 17 and 18, John gets down to where the rubber meets the road. He provides some practical advice on how to love in the context of everyday living. Uh, One commentator notes this. He says the transition from the plural, the brothers in verse 16, to the singular, his brother in verse 17, is deliberate and significant. He says it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And that just got me thinking, often do we say things like, I love widows, I love orphans, I love missions, I love lost people. Well, as you examine your life, do your actions reflect that? Does your bank statement reflect that? Does the way you spend your time reflect that? Have you done anything specific for a particular widow or orphan or lost person? Have you done for one what you wish you could do for all of them? Are you committed to a specific church? You, know, you may say, I love the church. Are you committed to a specific church? Are you using your spiritual gifts to build up that church? You know, the point is this. We don't love in vague generalities or pleasantries. Oh, we love specifically. That's what Christ displayed. So John makes that clear as he writes, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, he is in debt to him. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, said the same thing in James two fifteen through 17. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, One commentator defined love like this. He says, love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. So according to John, two factors place a person with material possessions really in a place of inescapable responsibility. And those two things are this. Number one, does he or she see a brother in need? And two, does he or she have the possessions to meet that need? Uh, That was the case for the Good Samaritan. So think about your own life. Do you know a brother or sister in need? Do you have what it takes to meet that need? And will you? Just to be clear, as Pastor J.D. Greer said, not every good deed has your name on it. 
Not every opportunity from heaven has your name on it. Uh, it's up to you to actually pray for discernment of all the good works possible out there. Which ones are you called to do? In light of Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared beforehand good works for you to walk in in advance. It's up to you to figure out what those are. And I tell you, if you don't, if you don't pray for discernment in that, you'll either, one, miss your opportunity, or two, you're going to be burned out doing all these things that probably had somebody else's name on it. So you got to pray for discernment as you go about doing good. All right, so in verse 17, one uh, commentator notes that John introduces a negative example using a greater to lesser argument based on verse 16. John tells his readers, Jesus had a life to give, and you have stuff to give. Jesus saw your need and gave his life. But John says, you, however, see your brother's need and close your heart against him. So John says, if that's the case, how can God's love abide in you? And the answer is, it doesn't. It's not there, John says. So John understood that our hearts control the hands, and a closed heart always results in closed hands. And also reveals that a closed heart is still a heart of stone, not one of flesh. So John concludes this whole argument with verse 18 with a simple statement that follows a negative to positive line of reasoning. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, your love language may be words of encouragement. That's fine. Words are part of the equation. But ultimately, love is more than words. You know, talk is cheap, as they say. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I'm annoying. So it's not enough to profess love for others. True love is displayed through actual deeds. Uh, Jesus, after all, didn't just say something. He actually did something. Love does, author Bob Goff writes. You know, when it comes to my children, I don't just tell them I love them. I protect them. I provide for them. I give them gifts. You know, so love does. And love is displayed through deeds, as John says. But he also adds this word truth for very good reason. So it's possible to talk lovingly without actually being lovingly. It's also possible to do a loving act without actually loving. So John connects love with truth. He anchors love and truth. So good deeds must be done in the context of truth from a heart of faith. Paul says in Romans 12, let love be genuine. And that phrase implies that there is a sort of love that's not genuine. There is a sort of love that's fake, that's superficial, that's hypocritical. So again, words can be empty. Actions can be hypocritical. God cares about both our motives and our actions. Um, so here's the good news for us today. This may sound like a high bar to love like Jesus self-sacrificially, that it, that is a high bar. Um, but the fact is, God would not command you to let your love be genuine, to love sacrificially if that were not possible. Martin Lloyd-Joins notes, The New Testament never asks us to do anything without first reminding us of who we are. It does so because its doctrine is what we cannot is that we cannot do the things we're asked to unless we are children of God. So as children of God, all things are possible. As children of God, Romans 5 5 tells us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. As children of God, Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the reality for the Christian is that God supplies the power to do what he commands us to do. 
the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ. John uses that phrase over and over again. And the point is, apart from Christ, it's not possible to do these things. You cannot love apart from Christ. Any love apart from Christ is superficial. So the fact is, John says, the Christian life is not about doing things for Jesus. It's about abiding in Jesus. As you do that, it'll be Jesus working in you to to love through you. So Jesus does not just display perfect love. He enables perfect love. That's good news for us. In conclusion, I'm about out of time here. The late John Stott summarized this text very well. I put this in your notes. He says this, Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain that originates in the devil, results in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ that originates in God, results in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. Another commentator said, Love is the circulatory system of the church. If the arteries of love get clogged, the church is in danger of spiritual cardiac arrest. So I ask you this morning, as you examine your life, is it one of love? Is it one of self-sacrifice? Is your love being displayed through your actions, through deed, in the context of truth? And are you on the path to leaving a legacy of love? If you're not on that path, I encourage you to get on it. I've been at Calvary most of my life, probably close to 30 years of my life. And Calvary is blessed to have so many senior adults who have left a legacy of love and have so many more that are still on that trajectory of leaving a legacy of love. And if you're on that path, I encourage you to press on. Don't give up in the end. That's really all that's going to matter. There are a lot of practical things we can do to leave a legacy of love. In your bulletin, there's an article that Pastor Paul provided with some good examples. But the fact is, any earthly legacy other than one of love is going to be temporary. Because we know Revelation tells us that one day, this earth is going to be no more. There'll be a new heaven, new earth. All that's going to be eternal is love. So let that be your legacy. And as a as discipleship pastor, if you're a guest to us, I'm not the senior pastor, I'm discipleship pastor. Um, as discipleship pastor, let me say this. The pathway to leaving a legacy of love is through discipleship. We do what Jesus did. We take people, we pour our, pour our lives into these people, and we tell them to go and do likewise. That way, when I'm gone, when you're gone, the people you invested in will remain and that legacy of love will continue through disciple making, through discipleship. Let me end with this. If there's any unbelievers here today or listening today, that quote I read by Martin Lloyd-Jones, he continues like this. The New Testament has no general indication to the world as to how it shall live. Its only message to the world is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and that's you, if you're an unbeliever, You know, I said a lot today in this message about doing good deeds. Well, good deeds apart from Christ are meaningless. On Judgment Day, your good deeds are not going to help you. So my message to you is repent from your sin, believe the gospel, believe that Jesus is who he says he is, put your faith and trust in him and follow him the rest of your days. Amen? Let's pray together. And after I pray, if you need to respond in any way, I'll hang out up here at front. You can come uh, as you need. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder today of the perfect, genuine, relentless, sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you that in him uh, we experience true love. And uh, I know that this command from John to 
to love one another sacrificially, to even lay down our lives for, for the brothers um, can be a challenging command, a challenging expectation upon the Christian life. But uh, we thank you for the good news that the Christian life is not about uh, doing good things to earn your favor. It's about abiding in our Lord Jesus, remaining in him through obedience, through prayer. And we thank you that as we do that, as we're led by the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, Filled with the Spirit, we love. We love like Jesus. So we thank you that Jesus did not just display love, that He, that you, that your Holy Spirit empowers us to love. And so I pray for each one here. I pray for Calvary as a whole, that we'd be effective and faithful at both displaying and declaring the love of our Lord Jesus. And I pray that all the glory would be yours. I do thank you that here at Calvary you bless us with so many people, so many senior adults that have left a legacy of love, a legacy of, of Christ and His love. I pray for all of us today that would be our, our inspiration, our motivation to, to press on, to stay faithful, uh, to leave a legacy of love that doesn't glorify us, but that glorifies you. And we thank you that in light of tomorrow that we have um, freedom in this country. Thank you for the men and women who laid down their lives that we might be free. Uh, but I pray that as we reflect upon that, we don't lose sight of the fact that in Christ we do have the ultimate freedom, freedom from sin, death, and hell, and love everlasting. So we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.